All right. Good afternoon, colleagues. This is uh, Richard McCallum, the editor-in-chief of the journal Investigative Medicine, the major journal for the American Federation for Clinical Research. And one of the highlights of my responsibilities really is every month to come up with a podcast uh, topic and I have the pleasure of inviting usually a, an expert as well as a, a colleague and friend in many cases. So it's a nice opportunity for me. And it's a way this, this month we, as we do with every month, I and my editorial assistant, Karina Espino, who's here with me today, um, we try to look at what's the disease of the month or the disease of the week or anything uh, to give us more options or choices. And uh, this month, uh, hepatitis, hepatitis C gets a lot of the publicity um, for being the most uh, dominant entity. So with that in mind and knowing expert an expert in that area, it was easy for me to take this as our topic and to turn to my colleague, uh, Professor Don Rocky, um, who uh, every time I think of Don's name, I now resonate with Blacksburg, Virginia. Don started off as a hokey. It all took place in that small town of Blacksburg, Virginia. What happens in Blacksburg stays in Blacksburg, right, Don? So Don went to college there and survived. Uh, I'm not sure they had a football team in those days. That was before uh, Vic and some of the uh, heroes of uh, the hokey football world evolved. But uh, Don went from there to VCU. Didn't go too far away, about two hours up the road to Virginia Commonwealth University. And I got to know Don, obviously, post-medical school. Um, when I came to... Um, Texas as the founding chair of medicine at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center El Paso. Uh, Don was the chief of GI at Southwestern, one of the kind of well-established and well-acknowledged pillars of GI in this, in this country, um, particularly with the legendary John Fortran uh, setting the stage there in the 70s and 80s. And then from there, Don became chair of medicine at Charleston, um, at the uh, College of Charleston Medical Center. And Don and I continued our friendship at the Southern Society for Clinical Investigation, where Don is the immediate post past president. I was a president some years ago. And, and then now Don is the chief of GI at uh, Medical College of uh, South Carolina in Charleston and has expanded beyond his liver disease niche, if you like, and he's working in the world of GI bleeding and um, look, looking at some things that I didn't predict he'd be doing, iron deficiency anemia and some other interesting sort of more general topics in GI. So with that in mind, but um, with that background, let me now turn and say um, good afternoon to Don and welcome him to our podcast. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Don. Yeah, good afternoon, Richard. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about 
<clears throat> anything you would like liver disease gi disease uh, <laughs> you, you name it I'm, I'm up for anything all right movies well we let me start movies. let me start in your wheelhouse let me start in your wheelhouse and uh, hepatitis c obviously even i see a little bit of liver disease i started off actually back in university back in ucla Wadsworth VA, I was a, a maven of counting white cells and peritoneal fluid. Hal Conn and I had hot debates about what was spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And so I, I began in the liver, uh, actually, before I moved on to the world of GI motility. So an interesting point now as we follow the liver transplant world, we now know that donors who are hepatitis C positive can donate their livers um, to in need recipients. And immediately that the recipient gets the liver, of course, he is or she is given the full court press to treat hepatitis C and eradicate it. But still one wonders um, with some follow-up, how indeed these recipients have fared and how is their the status of their liver. And so Don, maybe you can give us the, the view of uh, the national view and maybe views from around the world as do hepatitis C recipients fare well uh, having been eradicated? What's their sort of long-term course? Right, so, so that's a great question. This entire field has been revolutionized by the introduction of direct acting antivirals. So. Uh, in years past, before the DAA area, we would never consider transplanting a hepatitis C liver into a patient that didn't have hepatitis C already. And the reason is, is because it was very difficult to eradicate the virus. And uh, recurrent hepatitis C in a transplanted liver is a, a very serious problem, um, and one in which we have seen the uh, foreboding and dreaded complication of uh, fibrosis and cholestatic hepatitis. So that is a fulminant, rapid form of, uh, of uh, hepatitis C in which the, the, the graft essentially uh, uh, dies. But now with direct acting antivirals and the fact that we can use them in just about anybody, there are essentially no absolute contraindications to the use of direct acting antivirals. They're, they're very safe, they're very effective, very easy to take. Um, they, they have historically been expensive, but their price is coming down. And so now we can treat just about anybody with um, direct, acting, direct acting antivirals. So we are, um, our center and many other centers now are very active in transplanting patients who um, have or livers that are hepatitis C positive into patients who do not have hepatitis C and, uh, and then treating them. Uh, so post-transplant, you treat them with, uh, with the direct FD antiviral. And the outcomes are actually very good. The, the outcomes so far as we know are really no different than in a uh, uh, hepatitis C naive liver. And so there really should not be a major concern about, um, about receiving uh, hep C positive uh, liver. The, um, you know, the, the most important issue is that you do have to be treated. So you have to eradicate the virus. So it's very important that you, you do eradicate the virus. Um, 
And it is important that the donor liver is a healthy liver. So we would not want to transplant a, a donor liver that has a, a great amount of fibrosis in it into uh, into a transplant yeah. recipient. So generally... So have you seen, or the country has seen an increase in the total number of liver transplants and B, you've been one of the pioneers in an area that I was pretty skeptical about, the ability to transplant an alcoholic liver disease um, soon after being admitted with no commitment to uh, uh, entering a treatment program for, alcoholic, for alcoholism, and uh, hopefully they will eventually, but taking on alcoholic hepatitis and transplanting, uh, does that environment um, welcome a hepatitis C donor very well, as well, or do the alcoholic sort of um, uh, more acutely transplanted people have a little rougher time? Right, yeah, so you have two questions in there. The first question has to do with the number of transplants, and yes, the number of transplants has been increasing, and I think part of this is due to the availability of, this, of these hep C positive donors. Um, so that's question number one. And question number two has to do with alcoholic hepatitis. So yes, um, uh, again, our center and many centers in the United States are now considering patients for transplantation with acute alcoholic hepatitis, which as you know, historically is associated with a very, very poor outcome. So the acute form of alcoholic hepatitis is a very highly inflammatory, aggressive disease, um, often in young patients um, who have a very, very poor prognosis. And so, yes, we have been uh, transplanting uh, or using transplantation for some of those patients. Now it's not, um, not for everybody and patients who are successfully transplanted and undergo a very aggressive and active screening process. Usually it, it works best in patients who really didn't know they had liver disease before. So somebody who's, you know, um, uh, you know, drinks on, uh, drinks alcohol on a, on a frequent basis, but really had no previous evidence of liver disease. In fact, there are some data that suggests that those patients do better. It's all about recidivism in those patients. And you want to select patients that you believe are going to protect and take care of their new graft. But yeah, there's no problem with using a hepatitis C positive donor in somebody with acute alcoholic hepatitis. No problem at all. Well, let me turn to another topic. I did a little, little bit of reading in preparation for our interview, Don, and um, uh, what we did find out is the hepatitis C virus reinfection um, among HIV-infected men who are continuing to have sex with other men. Uh, maybe a subset, but certainly a very a substantial subset of the population uh, with HIV and a co-infection with hepatitis C. Are they vulnerable to reinfection when they're having probably unprotected sex with other men. Well, what's the sort of status of that world? Yes, this is a, this is a really important area. And um, there actually is a surprisingly good amount of data in this area. So um, uh, men who have sex with men are, uh, who are, um, who have had hepatitis C and had it eradicated. Now, again, typically with the direct antiviral they are at increased risk of, of getting 
of being reinfected with hepatitis C. And the risk varies from, you know, 25 to um, 30 some odd percent overall. And there are risk factors associated with this, as you've alluded to, unprotected um, anal sex is one of them, multiple partners is another one, um, uh, lack of uh, protection is another one. So, uh, so yeah, this is a real thing. It's very important and, um, you know, it's a problem. Of course, you know, the direct acting antivirals have made it such that we are able to, to retreat these patients and um, without being exposed to the risk factor, they can be assured that they're going to be cured. But, but again, it's got to do with sort of the, um, the risk of having, uh, I, you know, I think unprotected sex is, is the key here. And also I should point out that, that um, the risk of uh, obtaining hepatitis C in men who have sex with men is much different than for women. So the risk of transmission from a male to a female through standard um, uh, heterosexual um, uh, sexual encounters is quite low, um, less than probably one or two percent, uh, which is very different than what you're talking about in, in the population of men who have sex with men. Hepatitis B, of course, when I was growing up uh, with the Australian antigen, um, was um, certainly sexually transmitted. Hepatitis C hasn't had as much press over the years. The blood transfusions, Vietnam, and other things have gotten all the press. Um, but there is a, a continuous serious trickle, right? Would you say 20% of all hepatitis C patients were sexually infected? Or would you have any working figure? It never seems to get as much press. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I was just saying. So in, first, in the standard um, heterosexual uh, yeah. arena, the risk is very, very low. Okay. Uh, in, in the men who have sex with men, it's quite high for hepatitis C, much different than hepatitis B. So the right. risk is very high in hep B, but not so high in hepatitis C. And it's not clear what the, the biology and the pathophysiology of that difference is. But, um, but, but, uh, standard uh, transmission or transmission with standard uh, heterosexual by heterosexual means is, is quite low. And the other thing that's important to, to recommend is that transmission from the, the mother to the child is quite high in hepatitis B. And that's why we're so aggressive in vaccinating women and, and uh, testing newborns in hepatitis B. And it's comparatively lower in hepatitis C. Uh, from the mother to the child as well. Uh, let me switch um, tracks a little bit. Um, unfortunately, at my age, I have a lot of friends who <laughs> are developing cancer and um, metastatic often, and they're faced with radiation and chemotherapy and some challenges ahead. And of course, we, we, we see cancer in our own practices. Um, before they dive into these things, typically, um, you know, they have to get their teeth checked out and get often get teeth um, extracted because of risk, risk of infections much higher. Um, should we be treating or should we be screening for hepatitis C in the average cancer patient? Are they vulnerable? Uh, 
to hepatitis C, which would sabotage somehow their therapy? Yeah, so, so that's a very important question. Um, and the comparison here is hepatitis B. So with hepatitis B, there is a substantial risk of reactivation of hepatitis B when you get some of these aggressive chemotherapeutic regimens. And so we definitely recommend screening in all patients who have a history of hepatitis B. And in fact, uh, now we often recommend prophylactic treatment of hepatitis B while you're getting chemotherapy. That's not the same as with hepatitis C. So with hepatitis C, the risk of um, reactivation is very low. If you've had your hep C cured, you're unlikely to um, get recurrent hepatitis C. And, and it's probably got to do with the differences in the biology, the way this works. Hepatitis B can integrate into the genome and hide in the hepatocyte. Hepatitis C, when you clear it, you clear it and you're done with it. So hep C is, is different than hepatitis B. And currently I'm not aware of any guidelines that recommend screening specifically in this population. Now I will tell you, um, the CDC and uh, the, the liver societies have all now come out with very aggressive general guidelines for screening in hepatitis C. And basically any, you know, originally it was any baby boomer, anybody born in the baby boomer era should be screened. And now it's been generalized. And so now we're recommending uh, screening in, in pretty much anybody with any kind of a risk factor. I personally, in my own practice, if I see anybody with an abnormal liver test whatsoever, even if I think they might have NASH or some other liver disease, I aggressively uh, look for hepatitis C. And, and, and anecdotally, when as a hepatologist, I don't really uh, do hepatitis C antibody, very, I just get an RNA level because I want to know for sure whether they've got hepatitis C or not. So if I see an abnormal liver test, I'll go straight to uh, hep C RNA. Even if it's a fairly straightforward case of diabetes, obesity, and fatty liver, you'll still dig a bit deeper. Absolutely, absolutely. That, that patient with an AST of 65 uh, should, should be screened for hepatitis C. Because remember, hepatitis C looks externally in terms of liver tests very much like NASH does with very low grade elevations, low um, levels of inflammation um, and uh, reflected in the immunotransmitters. Well, Don, um, your recent role as chair of medicine and your continuing leadership role in the country, obviously um, we're getting the endless COVID data every day and and we'll continue to get it. And the latest, um, I guess, approach is the hangover effect. The fact that um, if you've had it, uh, you obviously might've done well and survived, but you could be looking at long-term sequelae for the next X years. And every organ has been attacked. Uh, everyone's had a, a piece of that action, including the liver. So do we have any sort of um, dark clouds over the liver regarding the fact that um, having had COVID, you're more prone to hepatitis C one day, uh, that your liver may not be fully recovered from COVID period. Um, what, what's the sort of uh, state of play, shall I say, in the world of COVID and the liver, the long-term follow-up? 
Yeah, so COVID certainly in the news. Uh, so that's a very good question. Um, and there actually is a fair amount of literature in this area. So we, I could tell you about a study that we did that we hope is coming out very soon in which we looked at liver tests in patients who were admitted to the hospital with COVID-19. And uh, as you would imagine, there's a wide variation in the degree of abnormalities, but a couple of things were very clear. One is that COVID-19 does not cause acute liver failure. So there have been a couple of sort of papers that are studies that have been out there claiming that there's a relationship between COVID-19 and acute liver failure, such as there is with, you know, hepatitis B or drug-induced liver injury or acetaminophen. Uh, but we could really find no evidence that COVID-19 causes acute liver failure. The other thing that was very clear was that um, the liver test abnormalities in these patients often reflected their underlying, the underlying severity of their disease. So if they were in the ICU and shock and uh, had multiple, you know, multi-organ system failure, liver tests tended to be abnormal, abnormal. And so we actually concluded in the study that we did not think that COVID-19 caused severe liver injury. Now, having said that, there, there have been a couple of studies that have, that have found COVID-19 in the liver, uh, suggested that there are COVID-19 receptors in hepatocytes. And so there may be a bit of play here and it may cause some mild liver abnormalities, liver test abnormalities, but I, I really don't think that COVID-19 is a big player in the liver here. And I would recommend to the audience not to be concerned about uh, chronic liver disease if you have um, had uh, active infection with COVID-19. There's just no evidence that it causes, like you know, hepatitis C we've been talking about, no evidence that, that COVID-19 is gonna cause chronic hepatitis or for that matter, any severe fibrosing uh, liver injury. Well, let me f maybe finish up with another question, a bit of a political question. And one of my other hats is um, I'm president of the El Paso County Medical Society, and I sit on the uh, Health and Public Affairs and Science Council of the Texas Medical Association. And we recently had it our um, spring, I guess, spring, summer uh, legislative meeting, um, we have to lobby for stances and, um, and make uh, recommendations. And uh, there was a, um, an issue about initiating hepatitis C treatment in patients with alcoholic um, liver disease. Uh, not all patients did, but in the subset with hepatitis C who were alcoholics, um, the idea was that you should not hesitate to initiate immediately hepatitis C therapy. I actually was, maybe I'm too old school, but I said I would not initiate immediate hepatitis C therapy in a patient with alcoholic liver disease, alcoholism and hepatitis C, unless I had some evidence from the family or the patient that they'd make a serious effort to enter a treatment program. We can't promise that it would be successful, but I would you know, demand an effort. As you know, hepatitis C therapy is not cheap. And um, I, I would want some commitment about lifestyle in those patients. Uh, the vote eventually was against me. They said, no, you're just trying to hold up progress 
we're going to treat anything that moves with hepatitis C, uh, no matter whether they're on, you know, probably heroin or alcohol. Uh, we, we're going to help their liver. And I said, well, you're not going to help their liver if they continue to drink. Um, you'll just replace what was hepatitis C cirrhosis with alcoholism cirrhosis, and they're not protected from that. Anyway, that's a bit of an off the, off, uh, off the sort of middle point, but a bit political. But um, interested to see what you would do if, uh, if this was a personal lobbying issue for you. What, what tactic would you take? Yes, uh, yes, that's a very controversial and, and socially charged question. Um, you know, I could see both uh, uh, angles here. I do think, so on the one hand, the direct antivirals, as I said, are, are very easy to take, they're very safe, they're very effective. I, I, but on the other hand, I tend to agree with you. I think if you, you can't treat somebody who's not gonna be compliant. So you can't send somebody home with this very expensive and very effective medication, which, uh, you know, who usually are gonna take this over a 12 week course, maybe 24 week course, um, and have them not be compliant because uh, being non-compliant is going to lead to treatment failure and perhaps could even theoretically lead to resistance. So I, I would not be enthusiastic about treating somebody who's actively, actively drinking and potentially non-compliant. Um, however, I, I think if somebody is going to take their medication, if they're, you know, engaged in a recovery program and whatnot, even though they had just, you know, completed a binge or whatever, I think it's fine to treat them. But the, to me, the key is, is compliance. If they're going to be compliant, take the medication and eradicate the virus, then I'm all for it. But uh, if they're not, then I think that, you know, this is a valuable resource and uh, costs money. And I, and I don't think we should be spending money on patients who are unlikely to be compliant. Thanks, Don. I always enjoy uh, our interview. I learn a lot. So I know if I'm learning something, the audience is really um, the beneficiary of some great new knowledge and um, a way to improve the quality of care they're giving to our patients around the country. So Don, on that note, uh, let me sincerely thank you again. Enjoy your time at the um, Isle of Palms and other great things in Charleston and um, look forward to seeing more of your published work that always uh, helps me and my house staff uh, get better. So on that note, Don, thank you again for all, for all uh, uh, good, good, good memories together and particularly for this interview. Great, Richard, thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I always, I learn more as well. So I uh, have to stay on my toes and <laughs> I'll look forward to hopefully getting to do this uh, in the future on some other liver topics. Well, hopefully we'll see you in New Orleans in February. I hope so. As well. Okay. All right. Great, Thanks, Richard. Don. Thanks very Thank much. You. See you later. Bye. Thank you.